Okay, well, I'd like to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at the last part of Romans chapter 8. Last week we were uh, at some verses in the middle of the chapter, but we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 39. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Romans 8 and verse 31, and uh, um, I will read these verses now. And Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Heavenly Father, please open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold wondrous things out of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. During the darkest days of World War II, when London was facing nightly bombings and Germany was rapidly overrunning the European continent, one thing the British people could count on was the intrepid leadership of their Prime Minister Winston Churchill. They experienced this mainly through his speeches to Parliament, which would be broadcast. Word would pass through Westminster, Winston's up, and as many as could would crowd in to hear him. And then Winston's reaching his peroration. That was the part of the speech, the peroration, the concluding part that would sum it all up. the the zenith, the apogee, the, the high point where he'd gather his argument together and then come to a crescendo in, in rhetoric, in the, uh, the art of oratory. This is the high point and it would engender such enthusiasm, such confidence. You can read his speeches today, long after the fighting has ceased and be transported into that moment in time and see at this point of crisis how Churchill's words could move an audience, a nation. Well, we have reached the peroration of Paul's letter to the Roman Christians. And there's such a rhetorical flourish to these words, this final part of Romans chapter 8, that the tendency is to read through them rapidly so as to bask in the overall effect. And we could perhaps miss the depth and the careful reasoning that has gone into these words that were carefully chosen. They're there for a reason. Romans is, of course, the most 
magisterial of all Paul's writings. And this is not the end of the letter. He's going to have more things to say, but these words sum up his presentation thus far. His presentation of the gospel of the grace of God. He asks, what then shall we say to these things? Well, what things? What were the things that he's been writing about for the last eight chapters? Chapters the, the plight of man and the power of God, the grace of the gospel, the mighty work of Jesus Christ, the justification of sinners, the faith that God requires and gives, the blessings that flow from God's justifying work in Christ, blessings like the peace of God, reconciliation with God, deliverance from sin and the wrath of God, release from the law and its bondage, the power of the Holy Spirit. What things? Those things. Yeah, what shall we say about those things? Well, they shout for us, and they shout to us triumphantly one thing above all, and that thing is that God is for us. God is for us. That phrase actually sums up chapters 1 through 8. And as I mentioned last week, Romans begins with that declaration, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And now he finishes this chapter by saying there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So there's no condemnation and no separation. But you will recall in the middle of this chapter that is, there is that inconvenient truth about the sufferings of this present age. So who can be against us if God is for us? That's his question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, it's a rhetorical question. Now, we hear that a lot, rhetorical questions. What do we mean when we say a rhetorical question? There are actually uh, four rhetorical questions in the first five verses here. A rhetorical question is a question in form, that's true, but the answer to it is so obvious that the question actually acts as a statement, a strong statement. It's a rhetorical way of making a point. So when Paul asks these four rhetorical questions, he knows what the answer is. They are there to get at his major point. And his major point in a rhetorical question form is really the mother of all questions. It's the big question that's at the bottom of all questions, at the bottom of every Christian heart. And that question is, are we going to be all right? Are we going to be all right? Am I going to be all right? Is everything going to be okay? I mean, in an ultimate sense, are we going to be okay? And we're asking that question now. Um, you know, interestingly, I think with a little more poignancy, because the whole world is facing this pandemic, are we going to be all right? Paul's purpose here is to give the Roman Christians and all Christians assurance, assurance 
Because we're thinking about this question now in real time. Am I going to be all right? Are we going to be all right? Am I going to have a job? Is the economy going to collapse? Are we going to be all right? Well, I won't keep you in suspense, folks. Uh, the answer to the question is a resounding yes, we're going to be all right. But let's examine Paul's reasoning, why he said this, and we'll do it by going what, through what his argument is in these four rhetorical questions. He starts off by saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? And of course, the simple answer to that would be no one, no one, Paul. But wait, wait, not so fast. It's not quite that simple, is it? And Paul knows it. Remember, he said in Romans 8.15, he spoke of the sufferings of this present time, which can be severe. No, my friends, we're not exactly living on easy street, are we? Well, that's a rhetorical question, by the way. If God's for us, who can be against us? Well, how about the world, the flesh, and the devil, for starters? The first verses of Ephesians chapter 2 indicate that the world is opposed to us, just as the world was opposed to our Lord Jesus Christ, opposed to him to the extent that the world killed him. The world was opposed to him. And then there's the flesh, our sinful nature, which continues to be present as an enemy even within us, trying to attract us to sin and distract us from God. Yeah, the flesh is opposed to us. It can be against us. And then there's the devil, the accuser of the brethren. He's always on the prowl, just as we heard from someone a little bit earlier when he was reading from 1 Peter chapter 5. Our enemy, like a roaring lion, seeks whom he may devour. Those are some things that can be against us. Formidable enemies, each of them. But Paul considered them, and he considered that they're no match for the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. He may have asked this question in Romans 8, in this first verse here, in a different way, which would be to say, if God is for us, who can successfully be against us? And then he gives a powerful and succinct reason why no one and no thing can successfully oppose us. And it's a reason that's actually worth memorizing. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely or graciously give us all things? Now, if you meditate on that verse, you'll see that Paul's logic is impeccable. God the Father gave us his Son. Now, this is a reference to the cross. He gave him over to death. Christ gave himself over to the cross. In giving himself, God gave us, excuse me, in giving us Jesus, God the Father gave us everything. Jesus giving us his life, Jesus gave us everything already. All the benefits of salvation are found in Jesus. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we can honestly say if we have Christ, we have everything. So if God has already given us his son, how in the world would he not give us anything else of a lesser nature that would be needful? 
Now, he who did not spare his son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with us, with him also graciously give us all things? Any possible ancillary benefits, how could God possibly withhold them? How will he not with him also freely give us anything that's needful? You know, even toilet paper, uh, anything that we need, God will get it to us if we really need it. No, if God is for us, no one and no thing can successfully stand against us. That's rhetorical question number one. But then he throws in a couple more to make the point, and they're similar in nature, uh, but they're slightly different. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then right after that, who is to condemn? Again, these are rhetorical questions, but these are in the realm of what we would call legal questions, the bringing up of a charge, the question about condemning, legal questions. They put us back in the courtroom. Legal questions mean legal problems. And if you've ever had legal problems, oh, oh dear. I mean, to, to be caught up in the maw of the justice system, ooh, boy, it just gives me chills thinking about it. If you've got legal problems, ooh, you've got real problems. Well, we had legal problems, but praise the Lord, God, the ultimate judge, has resolved them. He's ruled in our favor. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He quickly dismisses this question by stating, it is God who justifies. God, the ultimate judge, has justified us. Who is to condemn? Now, here Paul has a little bit more to say. Who is to condemn? Well, think about it, folks. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, if you have those words uh, reproduced for you on your screen, you'll notice that I underlined Christ Jesus died, was raised, is at the right hand of God. Those underlined phrases present us with the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. Christ died for our sins and rose for our justification. And then for good measure, Paul throws in here the ascension. He's not only been raised from the dead, but he ascended and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did he get there? Well, 40 days after his resurrection, in the sight of the apostles, he ascended in their sight, ascended into heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of God. That's where he is. Now, we don't think a lot about the ascension, but it is an essential part of the gospel. The right hand of God is the position of favor and authority. When God says, sit thou at my right hand, He's putting his son in that position of favor, but also the position of authority. And from that position of authority on the day of Pentecost, 10 days after he ascended, Christ sent forth the Holy Spirit, what's sometimes called the birthday of the church. And in a sense, it is when the Holy Spirit came upon the early church and they were filled with the Spirit. So, Jesus Christ, we're told in 1 Peter chapter 3, 
Jesus Christ has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So everything is subjection to him. So who is there to condemn? Well, Christ's in a position of authority and favor, and he's there as our advocate. So who's going to condemn? Christ has all the power and the authority. He's not condemning us. He died for us. He sits, he reigns, and he intercedes in glorified human flesh. Five, five bleeding wounds he bears, received at Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. Oh, I so enjoyed Albert leading us in singing those words from Charles Wesley. What wonderful words. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. <laughs> wow, wonderful, wonderful words. And the result of it? Well, my God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I shall no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, uh, cry. So, so who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised. And even more than that is at the right hand of God where he sits in glorified human flesh to pray for us, to intercede for us. Christ is interceding for us right now. And by the way, that's the gospel. If any of you today are listening to this and you're not believers, or if you're listening to this, excuse me for a minute. <coughs> I hope I did that the right way. I coughed into my elbow. If any of you are out there and you're not sure you're a believer and you want to be a believer, you want to get in on this, it's very simple. You just have to believe the gospel. You have to believe that Jesus died on the cross. You have to believe that he rose from the dead. You have to put your trust in him. And you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In other words, he's alive right now. And if you believe that, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says very clearly, whoever confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead, he will be saved. That's how you become a Christian. And you can get in on It's that simple. A child can do it. You must believe with your heart. You must believe with your heart and confess Christ as Lord. So who is to condemn? Christ died rose, ascended, and is praying. So, my friends, in an ultimate sense, our troubles are over. And we shouldn't think, by the way, that when Jesus intercedes for us before the Father, that he is doing something that the Father's disinclined to do, that is, to reconcile us and to show us favor. No, the Father loved us so much that he sent his son. 
And the son loved us so much that he gave his life. The mercy of God that is shown here can only come to us through the gospel work of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross in our behalf, his substitutionary sacrifice for us. He died so that we might live. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was stricken so that we might go free. We have forgiveness, but we have it only in him. We have it only because of him. And we have it only insofar as we are in union with him. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross, which he has accomplished, is applied to our hearts right here in the 21st century by the power of the Holy Spirit who regenerates us. We are born again through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit so that we come into a relationship with God where we are in union with Christ. So if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All right, those are four rhetorical questions, I think, somewhere around in that area. There's another one coming up. Uh, but next, Paul has seven kinds of suffering. When he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? There you have them. Seven kinds of suffering. And uh, this is not to exhaust all the different kinds of suffering. Uh, I mean, he didn't throw in pestilence there, did he? Uh, I don't think so. Um, he could have thrown that in. Uh, he could have thrown in natural disasters. That's not in there either. But, but Paul, just he rests upon seven kinds of suffering, because seven is a perfect number, and it stands for completion. And so what Paul is doing is another rhetorical way. So another, this is the fourth rhetorical question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Um, well, really, nothing can. But then he throws out some possible answers, these seven, because he wants to cover all kinds of suffering. And so, even though he could have listed others, these are sufficient to represent the sufferings of the present age. Uh, the tribulation that he starts out with, yeah, this covers the present age. Paul said it is through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I'm rapturing you out of the world today. No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Well, we may want him to take away the tribulation, but that's not his purpose to do that. Actually, through tribulation, he proves the genuineness of our faith. You may recall that Jesus said to Peter at one point, he said to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, and after you've turned again, strengthen your brethren. Peter may have stopped at that point and said, what do you mean you've prayed for me? Don't just pray for me. Keep that from happening. But Jesus didn't keep it from happening, and Peter went through the darkest valley of his life. He went through a period of denying the Lord 
but he was subsequently restored and came into a place where he strengthened his brethren and through his writings still strengthened them today. So it's not God's will to deliver us immediately from tribulation. It is his will to keep us in the midst of tribulation and certainly not allow tribulation of any sort to separate us from the love of Christ. And to further illustrate this, uh, Paul goes to a pretty extreme example. He goes back to Psalm 44, and he quotes from the psalmist to say, as it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Really? Yeah. Those were not, that's not apostate Israel, by the way. If you read it in context, it's about God's people suffering and dying, even though they had been loyal to him. Can that really happen? Oh, yeah. Those are what we call martyrs. God's already ha always had them. And he had them in the early church. And he has them today. I don't know what the statistics are for just this century, but in the 20th century, there were more martyrs for Christ than in the 19th centuries all before. People dying, even though they hadn't done anything wrong. The letter of 1 Peter, it's what we're in right now at Covenant Life Church. We're preaching through the letter of 1 Peter. It's all about patience in suffering. Yeah, it happens today. It'll happen in the future. There are sufferings that touch us, but what they can't do is separate us from the love of Christ. Paul says, no, in all these things, we're not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors. So we have four rhetorical questions, seven kinds of suffering, and then ten things that can never separate us from God. Ten things that can never separate us from God. Verses 38 and 39. For I am sure, I am certain, I'm confident, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm certain of it. Nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. And then Paul goes on to ransack heaven and earth for potential threats to things that could possibly separate us. He brings them out in pairs. He says, neither death nor life. Nothing in life and nothing in death. Well, we know some things about life. But what do we know about death? Well, we don't know much from personal experience, do we? The only thing we know is from one who died and came back to life. That is our Lord Jesus Christ, who overcame death. Nothing to fear, even in death. Well, I've, I've been a pastor for a long time, and it's been my privilege to be with people at the point of death. And to hold their hand as death 
approaches. And one thing I've noticed, and that is even Christians who are strong Christians and who have clear consciences, often go through periods of, of fear as death approaches. And we may think from sitting here at the standpoint of just really being strong in the scriptures right now and perhaps of sound mind and health, I won't fear that. Doesn't the Bible say that there's no fear in death? And, and, and yeah, that's true. In an ultimate sense, it's there's no fear in the sense that we will not face final judgment. Christ faced that for us. But when you actually get to the point of approaching death, yeah, I think there is fear associated with it. It's a natural fear, a fear of the unknown. What's going to happen? What's it going to be like? I've never passed this way before. The feeling of loneliness. Because nobody can walk those last steps with you except Jesus himself. You get a little bit of a sense of this in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. But when you walk those last steps, yeah, you may experience some fear. But our Lord is even able to carry his sheep, his beloved, through those last moments and into glory. But as Paul has said here, neither death nor life shall be able to separate us from God's love. The Bible's worldview shows us that this present age is not all there is. Our poor secular friends who are bound to this age, who don't have the hope of the age to come. We've tasted of the age to come, and we have a hope. It's rooted in the truth of the scriptures. It's rooted in our experience of the Holy Spirit. And it's based upon the finished work of Christ. We have a hope eternal in the heavens. Jesus Christ who has passed through to the other side. Neither death nor life can separate us. And neither angels nor rulers. And you can throw powers in there too. In this grouping, Paul refers to the realm of supernatural beings. Angels, well, we know who those are, but what are rulers and powers? Well, they cover the demonic realm. No, not anyone here can lift a finger to separate us from God's love. And then Paul brings out another pair, nor things present, nor things to come. So this deals with time, things that are present, things that are to come. Of course, the past is gone. So when Paul brings out this pair, he's saying there's nothing in time that can separate us. Neither height nor depth. That has to do with space. So nothing in time or space. And then, to make sure all bases are covered, he concludes with the phrase, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To be separated from God was the crisis of the fall. It was Adam's sin that separated him from God. It was God's grace that fashioned 
clothing from skins for Adam and Eve and established a covenant with them through the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. So God took steps to overcome that separation. And we see that promise of salvation, that covenant promise, come to fruition in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who crushed and destroyed the works of the devil. So to be separated from God was the crisis of the fall. But the cross overcomes that separation and reconciles us to God. Separation makes us isolated, leaves us lost, makes us vulnerable, defenseless, prey to danger. That's the plight of man. But to be reconciled with God is the greatest possible blessing because it means that we're friends with God, that we're welcome in his home, in his family, as his children, protected by him and provided for by him. But my friends, we're not all the way home yet, are we? Well, we are, but we aren't. We, we live, remember, in this overlap of the ages. We've tasted of the age to come, but we're not entirely there yet. We have the presence of the future, but it's not completely here. We live in the already, but the not yet. And so that's why we pray, thy kingdom come. Well, the kingdom has come with our Lord Jesus Christ, but it has not come in its fullness. So we live in this overlap of the ages, and that's why we can get confused sometimes and feel like, uh, things are not going well. But when we reorient ourselves to truth through Scripture, through fellowship, engaging with the Holy Spirit, then we regain our balance. Uh, now, now, to be honest, it, it doesn't take much to knock us off balance, does it? It doesn't take much to kind of get us out of our groove. Have you ever heard that phrase? Back in the olden days, we used to have these things called record players, phonograph players. And so you'd have music that was on a disc that had grooves. And there was a needle on a turntable, the phonograph needle, that would go in those grooves and it would actually play music. This uh, went out uh, with uh, just after the days of the horse and buggy, but some of us older folks remember these things. <laughs> you know, if you bumped the record player, the needle would go out of its groove. It didn't take much to bump it. And some of us, you just bump us a little bit and we're knocked off our group, we're knocked off balance. Doesn't take much. We need to continue to renew our minds according to the Word of God. We need to be careful not to let the world squeeze us into its mold. We need to make use of the means of grace, prayer, fellowship, Bible reading, Bible study, Bible memorization, Bible meditation. And then when we do that, oh, our souls are reassured, aren't they? Well, we know. God knows we need reassurance. And how reassuring are these words of the Apostle? Mm. They're recurring. 
rhetorical questions, and they're all designed to answer that big question, the mother of all questions. Are we going to be all right? Yeah, we're going to be all right. We have certainty and assurance of full salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord, who lived and who died and who rose and who ascended and who is praying and who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has sent the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee that we will follow him in the resurrection. But right now, we've got a job to do. All of us have a job to do. We all have a mission. We're all here for a reason. It's wonderful to hear those of you that are talking and sharing about reaching out to the elderly tenant in the basement and to the neighbor. Uh, we, we've, we've been given a job to do. And even if we can't get out of the house, even if we're in a wheelchair, we can, we can pray. Uh, we can give. We can still love. There is no situation that we can possibly get ourselves into where we cannot still love God in worship and love our neighbor in whatever means are at our disposal. And in so doing and fulfilling those great commandments, glorify and honor God. So are we going to be all right? Well, God is for us. I believe so. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the encouragement that we receive from the Scriptures. Thank you for this consolation for our souls. Thank you for this wonderful peroration in Paul's argument as he ascends to the zenith of his argument and preaches these wonderful words at the end of Romans 8, our hearts soar with him. And we know that even though a battle rages, in a very real sense, the battle has been won. And we are not just conquerors, but more than conquerors through him who loved us. Help us, your people, take heart in these days. Help us to take heart and help us to engage the work that you've given us to do for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.